This is an ABC podcast. Yes, it's that time of year again. A time for cheesy music, overindulgence and, of course, the obligatory New Year's resolution that next year things will be different. For many, a better work-life balance is on that list. In fact, there's a global push underway to help people recalibrate their lives. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. This is Future Tense. Now, to give you a little nudge, let's start with the idea of a disconnect. I don't mean a digital detox or a retreat from the online world, but a stronger delineation between work time and own time. And we could do worse than to take a lead from the French. As Dr Gabrielle Golding explains, she's from the Adelaide Law School. It was at the beginning of 2017 that France implemented a right to disconnect. That came about by way of statute, so law that's made by parliament. Under that legislation, what they were able to do is to say that companies with 50 employees or more were required to negotiate a particular policy with their workers about disconnecting from work outside of working hours. So I guess it's not like everyone in France, as soon as it hits five o'clock that they put down work and don't look at any emails or anything like that. It's very much contingent on the particular workplace and what's been negotiated. And I should say that it seems like a really good start, but there are obviously things that could be improved in that model because it does only apply to larger workplaces and it's really only the right for workers to have a policy negotiated. So there is some improvement that could be made. So it's not universal. Do we know how many workers it would cover, how many workplaces it would cover? In France in particular, I I couldn't give an exact figure, but it's probably a lot of the larger businesses over there that would, they're required to have a policy of that nature. And I presume in the French model then, if this is about negotiations between employees and employers in a specific workplace, Mm. the policy that's developed is going to be very different depending on which workplace you're actually part of. That's quite right. And I guess, I mean, we see the same thing here in Australia where we have all sorts of policies on all sorts of things in individual workplaces and often that can work quite well and I think it's a good start. But to have the right to disconnect, I think, implemented at a higher level, perhaps through legislative intervention, so law made by parliament, it would see a universal position across the country where we're able to have a consistent understanding of what that right to disconnect could look like and should look like perhaps for all employees rather than it kind of varying between individual workplaces as it does in France. And France is not the only country that's been looking at or moving toward this idea of a right to disconnect, is it? No, it's now gathering momentum in quite a number of other countries. So Finland, Germany, Lithuania, Luxembourg, Malta, Russia. I mean, I could keep going on and on and on. And there are other countries that are starting to look at implementing the right as well. So it's certainly up for discussion, I think, in Australia, but it's not necessarily yet on the legislative agenda. So we've got a little way to go. Now, tell us about the situation in Victoria with Victorian police least because there is a situation there, isn't it, in a workplace where a right to disconnect has been negotiated. How has that happened without, as you say, a law of parliament occurring? 
in Victoria, the police force there have a right to disconnect because of what is set out in their enterprise agreement. That is a particular workplace agreement that applies to Victoria Police only. It's an agreement negotiated between Victoria Police and its workers. It sets out minimum terms and conditions that police officers in Victoria can expect from their employment. So one of those things is a right to disconnect from email contact and from being contactable generally, even on the phone, outside of contracted hours for police officers that are below a certain rank. The relevant union there was able to successfully negotiate that as a right for workers in the most recently negotiated enterprise agreement for them. So I think that was a really successful outcome and it has set a bit of a benchmark of how that right could look if it's implemented at the local workplace level. Could it be done at an individual level through individual employment contracts? Is that possible? I think that's certainly another option. Uh, If it's not negotiated through an enterprise agreement, because of course, enterprise agreements don't necessarily cover everyone's workplace. You may work somewhere where there isn't an enterprise agreement. It may be then more beneficial for it to be part of an individual employment contract. And that perhaps being a standard term that's put into employment contracts in particular workplaces as well. Another option, of course, is to have the right to disconnect maybe implemented in a modern award. They're another type of statutory-based instrument, so again, derived from law made by parliament that cover individual workplaces based on someone's occupation or the industry in which they work. You can either be covered by an enterprise agreement or a modern award, but of course, another kind of layer of your employment is to have an employment contract, which everyone would. And it's, again, as you mentioned, a possibility that you could have the right included in the individual employment contract. So there are various options by which this kind of right could be instilled in law in a country like Australia. I take it from what you've said that you believe that doing it through legislation, through the parliament, is the preferable way. Why would that be? I think the main reason for suggesting that is that it's a universal right that will apply to every worker, irrespective of where they necessarily work. So it may be the case, as I mentioned before, that your workplace doesn't have an enterprise agreement. Maybe you have an employment contract that doesn't include the right. It's very, very challenging to try and change modern awards to include new things in them. So if Parliament were minded to create some kind of a right to disconnect, perhaps learning from what has and hasn't worked in France and other countries, then it would be something that is universally applicable and therefore much more widely understood and hopefully more widely adhered to as well. Dr Gabrielle Golding there and the right to disconnect. Now, achieving a better balance is one thing when there's legislation to guide the way or you're part of a union. But what about as an individual? Well, common sense suggests it's bound to be more difficult, but not impossible, according to psychologist Aaron McEwen, who's also a researcher for the consultancy Gartner. In fact, today's employees, he argues, have more bargaining power than they realise. During the pandemic, what many employees did was that They took advantage of an opportunity to do their own job crafting. 
So they were able to craft their environment to suit the way that they want to live and work. So it's very hard to go back from that. And I think, you know, many organisational leaders are feeling the pinch of this as they try to encourage people to come back to offices and they're just not returning at the levels that they would hope. That kind of increased personalisation, though, would rely on some sort of contract or, or pact, wouldn't agreement between employees and employers. Do you see enough interest from employers for that to, to be substantial? I don't know if they have a choice at this point in time. You know, there are certainly concerns about looming recession, but as we sit here today, employees' confidence in the job market is at a record high level. And Australia has one of the most acute talent shortages of any industrialised nation in the world. And there's no real indication that that talent shortage is going to go away anytime soon. So what that means is that realistically, employees do have a lot of choice. And we've already seen lots of examples of where organisations have had to adapt to that power differential that exists in the current talent market. Picking up on that point, though, we're told employees have more power yet wages have been pretty much stagnant for several years now, which would suggest that they don't actually have all that much power in terms of negotiating conditions. Well, there's a big assumption there that employees are overly driven by compensation. The reality is that, you know, when we look at the top reasons why an employee changes jobs, compensation sits at number four. At the top of that list is actually location and flexibility. So, Australian employees seem to be quite willing to trade more flexibility and therefore more personalisation for money. I I actually think that what people want, and, and there's deep reasons for this, I'll often share with our clients, for example, that pandemics are existential events. You know, they remind people of the fragility of their lives. Uh, they remind people that they have a short time on the planet. And so what we saw coming out of the pandemic was a collective deep reflection on what is the role of work in people's lives? Where does it fit? You know, what sort of a priority is work going forward for people? So, you know, if their fundamental economic needs are met, then work is now much more about how do I create a way of working that is more sustainable, that allows me to invest more time into the things and relationships that I care about. So the economic component is just one component. And and in fact, what we're seeing is data that shows that people are interested in more things than just money. So in one sense, this is about adopting a more sophisticated approach to how a job gets done, isn't it? You know, rather than just thinking there is one way of doing things for all companies, all firms, all organisations. Absolutely. When you say it out loud, it seems kind of ridiculous, you know, that there is one way of working. So the office is a great example of that. You know, if you go into a modern office today, everyone's sitting in the same chairs, at the same desks, in the same cubicles. I often talk about the thought experiment of air conditioning. You know, if you go into any modern office today, assuming anyone's actually there, by the way, but assuming they are, and you were to ask them, how do you feel about the temperature? You're going to get a lot of different responses. And essentially, nobody's really happy with the temperature. Yeah, it's very difficult for an organisation to compete with a home office when it comes to that personalization component. You can set the temperature how you want it, you can use the tools that you want to use, you can set things up your way, rather than that experience that we often have of being, I would refer to it as sheep dipping. You know, you all get the same experience. And what's really clear to me is that consumers, customers 
are rejecting that approach. So they don't want to be told that you have to buy these products in this way. What they're looking for is choice. However, there is a kind of limitation of choice. So I don't think you need to give people open slather, but you know, probably one of the most successful organizations in the world, Apple, has found this incredible balance between offering choice within a limited range of options. And that, I think, is probably more like what the future of work's going to look like. And just finally, somebody who feels that they could be more productive for themselves and also for their company if they had a more personalised work arrangement, how do they go about convincing a perhaps reluctant employee? What are some of the tips or hints you could give? Yeah, well, we're already seeing this. So, for example, we know that employees are increasingly attracted to organisations that offer what we call radical flexibility. The more autonomy that you give employees over where they work, when they work, who they work with, what they work on, the stronger your kind of employment brand is in the market at the moment. So we know that that's already happening. But if you were, I guess, working for an organisation that was reluctant to give you that type of freedom, well, the first thing I'd say is that in the current market, you probably have the choice to go elsewhere in most cases. If you wanted to stay with the organisation, then I think it's about opening up a dialogue with your boss or your manager to talk about the benefits of being able to craft the work so that it suits your strengths and perhaps the timing and locations that are going to help you do your best work. But it is going to be about putting a business case forward, I think, for most employees. Okay, so at this point, Let's assume you've successfully negotiated a right to disconnect and somehow you've managed to persuade your otherwise obstinate boss that everything will be better off if he or she gives you the lead to tailor your work environment to suit your personal needs and preferences. So, where to from here? Well, the next step, according to Charlotte Lockhart from the campaign group 4-Day Week Global, is to take a critical look at the hours you work and then to ask yourself whether, in fact, you could actually increase productivity and achieve more by working a shorter week. While we call ourselves four-day week, we're actually really talking about reducing work time. So in our pilots around the world, and while the majority of them do actually take a four-day week, there are a number of companies that are looking for a, a slightly more flexible way in which they reduce work time down to 32 or possibly even 30 hours a week. So we've got pilots running in South Africa and Europe, UK, Ireland, North America. We are uh, launching in Brazil before too long. And, and obviously we have pilots running here in Australasia too. And various governments are also looking at this idea of reduced work time, aren't they? Yes, and so there are a number of politicians who have put up reduced time legislation. Possibly this is a little soon, but you have to start the conversation somewhere. But there are a number of governments, Portugal and Spain, as clear examples of that, who have decided that the best way to solve the conundrum is to actually run a pilot in their countries. And what you can do in your country is determine how reducing work time would work for you. And and obviously there's a call for this in Victoria and the ACT government in Australia are also making some fairly strong noises about this. 
I mean, through the pandemic, of course, we all learned how to work remotely and flexibly. Well, not all of us, because let's face it, not all jobs can make that work. But it did give a lot of bosses an opportunity to see that they could allow their people to work differently. In the middle of pandemic in the UK, the CEO of Barclays Bank was quoted as saying, who knew I could run a 70,000 person bank from my kitchen bench? And so those are the sort of things where we're seeing business leaders are seeing that they can allow their workplaces to work differently. But possibly more importantly, their people are saying we insist on working differently. And I think an interesting story that came out of the pandemic is that in the northern summer of last year, Tim Cook, who's the CEO of Apple, came out and said to his people, you know, when we get come back after the pandemic, we're just going to come into the office three days a week. And his people said no because he didn't ask them. Now, back to your point, I'm pretty sure that if he'd said prior to the pandemic, hey guys, I've got this great idea, let's just come into the office three days a week, as people probably thought that would have been a great idea. But post-pandemic, you have to engage with your people and find how you're going to work your business in a proper and engaged conversation. Now, moving toward the equivalent of four days a week work would see Mm. a drop of around 20% of work time for an average Mm -hmm. employee. Some people listening to that would say, look, that sounds great in terms of work-life balance, but does that mean that I've just got to squeeze that other 20% into the rest of my work week? And also, what will it mean for my wage? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a principle called the 180-100 rule, which is uh, 100% pay, so your pay is not going down, 80% time, but 100% productivity. And so when companies come on our pilot programs, what we do with them is we encourage them to go through a process of truly understanding what productivity is in the business. It is one of those things where you actually start looking at why am I truly here and doing the things that matter rather than the things that actually are on the periphery. But again, any talk of productivity for some people, uh, uh, particularly those who are overworked and, and who do lots of unpaid overtime in their job already, just means having to do more in a shorter period of time. It's going to be a concern for people, isn't it? It is. But there is a difference between being busy and being productive. And so when companies come on the pilots, what they look at is what are, why are we here? What are the things that we do that add to what we are trying to achieve as an organisation. Now, when we talk about 180-100, there are organisations that are working more than 40 hours a week. And so therefore getting down to 30 or 32 might actually just be a little bit of a task. But how about they got down to 40 in the first place? So how do we drive a process that means that that unpaid overtime actually doesn't exist anymore? And that tends to be one of the big things that organisations find when they go through the program. And what's in this for the employer who might be sceptical? Increased productivity, a better and healthier workforce. You know, there are all sorts of statistics that come out of this in terms of productivity and profitability go up, but also things like sick days halve, the cost of recruitment is impacted because you're attracting and more importantly, retaining your great staff. And so there are clear lines within your, on your balance sheet that are immediately impacted by actually not having your people leave. I suppose one concern people might have, and we saw this during the pandemic, was 
with working from home was that there was an increase in inequality in some areas, that it was much easier for people in, say, white-collar jobs to work from home than it was for people in service industries, particularly low-paid industries. Is there that kind of danger of inequality with this sort of idea of a a four-day week? There doesn't appear to be in the companies that have joined the pilots. There is no denying that it is easier in some roles than others. But when companies come along with us, what we do is we encourage them to learn lessons from across their industry, across all of their divisions, so that they can actually end up with it being equitable. It might not be equal because, you know, in the office it might be a four-day week, but on the factory floor it might be a six-hour day. But it ends up being something where the heart of the company is insisting on how do we reduce time without reducing pay. For some people, this will seem like a radical proposal, but, um, you know, it is in line with developments around wages and work hours that occurred at the beginning of the 20th century, isn't it, in the late 19th century? Well, this is it. I mean, we used to work seven days a week and then we worked six days a week and then we worked five days a week. And each time there will have been bosses out there, probably be whiskered old men who would have gone, you are a crazy. You're going to ruin our economy. You're going to ruin it for the rest of us. And in the last 70 to 100 years of working five days a week has shown us that nobody was ruined by it. So Given that we have had so much increase in the amount of technology and you know so much development in the way that we earn and produce, why is it that we're still working five days? It makes no sense at all. Charlotte Lockhart, thank you very much for your time. My absolute pleasure, Anthony. You're with Future Tense, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. Now, I know what you're thinking. You like the idea of everything we've discussed. You're keen to improve your work-life balance looking ahead. Why wouldn't you be? But the truth is, you're just not convinced that any of it is going to happen in your workplace, your world, anytime soon. If that's the case, there is one small but not insignificant thing that you can still do to make things a little easier on yourself. And that is take a break. A breather. Move away from your computer. Yeah, I think a lot of people, for various reasons, have neglected taking appropriate breaks. And I think a lot of people don't even think about it. And that's kind of part of the problem in the sense that we plan our day, we plan our meetings, we plan the work we're going to get done. But we don't sit back and really think about, well, where am I going to get my breaks? How am I going to make sure that I have the energy and the focus to be able to do everything as effectively as I possibly can and in a way that's not going to just exhaust me so that I end up experiencing longer-term health issues like higher levels of stress, anxiety and burnout, etc. John Trigakos, a professor of organisational behaviour at the University of Toronto, Scarborough. I think part of that stems from some of the, the work ethic mentality that we've had from past generations and that kind of work we used to do was quite different. Going back in history, I think when people were more agrarian and people worked from sunup to sundown, and then we went more into kind of assembly line type work. And so breaks were scheduled in and lunch breaks and, you know, a lot of the physical labor still has that to some extent. But of course, if we're talking about office type jobs, 
then I think people just sort of kept this mentality of, well, I'm not physically feeling too exhausted. I'm just going to keep working. And so people would just keep working. And then organizations as well have put over in, in recent decades quite a bit of pressure on people working in offices to just keep working. And so I think we've neglected employee well-being issues, and we've not paid attention to the fact that sometimes a little bit less is more when it comes to the amount of work people are doing. If you just keep pushing and pushing yourself, eventually you get less and less effective. You start making mistakes. You're not as productive. And ultimately, it doesn't benefit the organization, but it also doesn't benefit the employee who doesn't do the job they they should be able to do. And, and they're also exhausted by the end of the workday. So I think it's a combination of many things that have led to this. But needless to say, it is an important issue. I know it's difficult to generalize, but how often should an individual take breaks and how long should those breaks be during an average workday? So this is determined partly on the job. I mean, obviously there are jobs where the nature of the work is more physical and there's a physical component to it. That means, you know, it's physical energy and how can they, you know, maintain that to still be effective and safe in doing their job. In mental type work and knowledge work and office work, what we tend to find is, and there is some data that supports this, is that people work very productively in shorter bursts. So there is some data that shows that for about every 52 minutes of work that the top 10% of performers do in organizations, that they take about 17 minutes of break, right? So if we kind of were to break that down at about the hourly level, what I kind of say is for every 45 minutes of good, solid, concentrating work you get done, take about a 15 or so minute break you know, that's just one kind of break, you know, as we kind of go through the short periods of productivity. The other thing to keep in mind is that we physically and our get fatigue in our body and our muscles, our eyes get tired, our neck feels strained. And so about every 20 minutes or so, people should stand up and take a micro break, right? Stand up, stretch, take their eyes off their screens, and then sit back down and, and, and continue working. So again, that's just kind of a best kind of offering there. I mean, we, we can't really say definitively every person's a little bit different, but generally speaking, about 50 minutes of working and, and 10 minutes of break per hour is a reasonable amount. And I presume the quality of that break, the quality of that rest time is important. Yes. It's not just switch from one task that's tiring to one ta another task that's slightly less tiring. You know, the idea is to actually disconnect from the work that you're doing mentally, even physically, get up, move around, get your body to kind of have a bit of a reset, you know, physically as well as mentally. And so, you know, things that we should be doing are things like taking uh, time to relax a little bit, maybe going for a bit of a walk, definitely getting some stretching in, chatting with friends that, you know, you might want to chat with to kind of get your mind off things a little bit. And, you know, those are the kind of things that people should be doing, maybe having a healthy snack, let's say. But definitely not just sitting at the desk and, and continuing to uh, do some different kind of work or do something that's you know stressful or even just sitting there and surfing the Internet may not be the best thing as well as it doesn't really get you away from that uncomfortable working position that you might be in. Are employers starting to tweak to this? Are they starting to realise that it's to their advantage, to the organisation's advantage to have workers taking breaks? I think this is something we're seeing more and more of. You know, obviously, we're in a bit of a flux in terms of the work environment that we're in as we come out of the pandemic. I think companies are embracing things like hybrid work. They're embracing flexible work, which is important, which is these are concepts that are conducive to having more balanced work styles and, and having more breaks in the way people work. 
I think companies are realizing as we've gone through high levels of burnout, which was already high before the pandemic, and then going through the pandemic, we saw burnout levels also be very high for people, that with mental health being such an issue for a number of employees, companies are realizing, hey, there's something we have to do a little bit differently here. And a really cheap and easy way is to make sure employees are taking their breaks, you know, taking those small times to just re-energize, recharge, stop the strain cycle that people are experiencing and the stress cycles that people are experiencing. You'd be surprised how much of a difference that might make for somebody over the course of a work day or a work week or a month or even a year when because as it, as it adds up, it is cumulative in a sense. There we are. Some tips for how to start the new work year with a greater sense of delineation between own time and work time. John Trugarkos, and before him, Aaron McEwen, Gabrielle Golding, and Charlotte Lockhart. This is the final episode in our 2022 series of Future Tense. Next week, we start a series of highlight programs, some of our best from the past year. And then in late January, we'll be back with a whole new season. My thanks to co-creator Karen Savanovitz and to sound technicians Steve Fieldhouse and Dave White. I'm Anthony Fennell. Enjoy the festive season. Cheers and bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.